Hello folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday night, October 28th, and I am coming to you, as always, from the office of my home in Boulder, Colorado. It's a cool, cozy night here in Boulder, dark early now. Halloween is in the air, it's coming up on Friday night. It's fun, actually. I mean, one of the great things about Halloween in Boulder, as I think is true in other green subcultures, which, you know, Boulder's a pretty green plus town, Halloween's as much a holiday for adults as it is for kids. And it's, you know, already starting. Uh, today I was walking downtown and I saw a lady walking a black pug with just these perfect vampire wings. They were shiny and just perfect proportions. I mean, this looked like a little monster. It was really great. And she was dressed normally, except she had this huge oversized witch's hat. So, you know, it was fun. It, it lit up the sidewalk. People were laughing. People were talking. It's um, just basically good community. And it's, um, I think, indicative of what happens as we move into green postmodern consciousness is that we want to express ourselves. And uh, we want to see the particularities of each other. And we want to turn towards our shadow material. You know, earlier stages did some of that too. I mean, certainly in tribal and even warrior stages, you definitely, you know, turn towards your shadow. Uh, evil spirits, they were seen as something outside of you, of course. Uh, but modernity wrung all the that out, out of the system and, you know, superstitions and so forth. So if you get people, modern people like my parents um, or, you know, a lot of my contemporaries, actually, they're, they're not interested in Halloween and, you know, dressing up. And of course, I'm not either, but that's probably for other reasons. I'm just lazy about it. I like watching other people. I'm a five, Enneagram five. Um, I think of something, actually, my friend of mine who is from Thailand said she grew up in Thailand. She was raised there and was educated in Switzerland and worked at Silicon Valley. And I met her at, at Naropa. And she would say that when she would go back to Thailand, that she would never leave the curtains open because the evil spirits look into your house at night from the dark. And that was very real for her <laughs> in, a, in, a, you know, in, in a way when she was in Thailand. And then when she was in the West, she's a perfectly modern woman and it didn't make any difference. So it's just easy to you know, see and feel into some of these strata of development, you know, our own magical strata of development, where spirits are something that are real. And that at Integral, we actually want to bring that back, but in a way that isn't limited, so that we can see the sort of the enchantment of life, we can see the spirits in the world, and relate to them, and not poo-poo them, and not, you know, deny them because they're not measurable by science, uh, but also not... Um, you know, be, be driven or limited by them as we were in earlier stages. So this is just part of the project of Integral and Halloween reminds me of that portion of it. So, yes, I, I, as I wrote down here, this is our future people. In the sacred world to come, adults dress up for Halloween. So you can take that to the bank. Okay, I also wanted to shout out to Integral Life, which is the main web portal for cutting-edge integral thinking. They feature Ken Wilber's latest work. Uh, they host this podcast, for which I am grateful. And uh, this podcast is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. And it is posted along with additional commentary that I make through the weeks from time to time on my personal blog, dailyevolver.com. So again, a thank you to IntegralLife.com. Hi, Brad. How you doing, man? All is well. Cool. Kitchen. Where's little Stella, our little puppy? She's asleep on the couch. Good. But I think we should get some wings for her, too. <laughs> yeah, little vampire wings, because she's black, too. You know, and it yeah. would really, I mean, she has black eyes, black nose. I mean, it's, it's, she's a silhouette. She's a little shadow puppet dog. She's a little chihuahua wiener dog. And uh, about a year old. So I think this is probably, though, what's called for is the old saying, let sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, cool. 
All right, so we're going to take a poll, as we often do. And tonight the poll is, how disappointed in Obama are you? <laughs> Let me say it in a little more of a, you know, socially scientific way. What's your approval of Barack Obama as president? Uh, one, strongly disapprove. Two, moderately disapprove. Three, I'm in the middle. Four, you approve. And then five, strongly approve. So you can press one through five. Again, one, strongly disapprove. Five, strongly approve. And then find your middle ground. All right. We will look at the results of that poll a little later and talk about it. So I want to, really, there's, there's no big theme tonight. I just want to share some of the things that have caught my eye this week that, you know, relate to this idea of emergence that um, recognizes, and this is a big part of integral theory, that we are, all of us, evolving people in an evolving world. And we're evolving individually, and we're evolving collectively, and the, the sort of means and the stuff and the society and the economics and all of that is evolving as well, you know, we can pay attention to this and see that um, evolution, actually, if you look at the trajectory of history and human history particularly, uh, it's a relentless achievement of goodness, truth, and beauty with a lot of very florid um, setbacks. <laughs> And uh, you, you might say that, you know, human history is an evolving catastrophe uh, because it never looks good in real time. It often isn't good in real time. But as we say, evolution is beautiful, but not always pretty. And so I want to start by just a, a quick catch up on a story I focused on last week, and that is the story of the Ebola crisis. And to just note that this week, uh, at least in the United States, we spent a lot of time, and I, I, you know, sort of keep an eye on the cable news cycle because that's where a lot of people get their news and also, you know, the internet and the, the various news websites. And the number one story for the last week has been the story of these two nurses that have, um, well, one of them came back from working in Liberia and she was isolated in a tent and we got to watch her 24 hours. She was complaining about it. She wasn't happy about it. The governor of New Jersey, the governor of New York, it turns into this big story. The second story is about um, the nurse that was originally infected in Dallas by the man who came back from Liberia who died. There were two nurses who were infected and that she was discharged from the hospital in Dallas uh, because she no longer has Ebola. She's been cured. And I think that when we're when these are the lead stories, and I'm not complaining that they are in a certain way, but the, these, the, you know, it's a pretty good world in this moment, at least. I mean, I, mean, I think the next time we have a 9-11 or if we have, you know, a bomb go off or a dirty bomb or if we have a real, you know, you know, highly, highly infectious epidemic going on. We're going to look back with um, a certain um, nostalgia for the week where the lead stories were about these two nurses. And, you know, I, I do have to just point out uh, that I really am appalled, and I don't normally say this, but I am, I actually am, about a Fox News headline in their website about the second nurse, this Amber Vinson, who was discharged in Dallas having been cured of Ebola. And their headline was, Dallas nurse infected with Ebola discharged from hospital. So, you know, the Dallas nurse infected with Ebola discharged from hospital. I mean, you can just feel how that feels. I mean, this nurse with Ebola is discharged from the hospital. And it's actually 180 degrees opposite of the reality of the story. And it shows that if you're letting your headline writers write these kinds of headlines, you're not a serious information outlet. It's completely misleading. I had a journalism class once. I know these things. It was, it's completely misleading as to the most salient fact of the story, and that is that she was cured. And she doesn't deserve this. I mean, I mean, nobody does, but she especially doesn't because she did a news conference today, and she is the most 
gracious, full of gratitude, uplifting person I've seen in a long time. I mean, I, I wanted to weep from this woman. So I'm mad at Fox News. I mean, some days I can take Fox News and some days I can't. But, you know, otherwise, you know, it's Huffington, you know, Daily Caller, uh, uh, all of them. You know, these the, the nurse who's quarantined and um, even Bill Maher is talking about. It. It's not just the right wing. It's Bill Maher, you know, left wing. He's panicked. He's I mean, he says, I'm not panicked. I'm pissed at the morons at the hospital in Dallas. They, you know, in Dallas, they, in Texas, they hate regulation. They love their freedom. So they couldn't be bothered to notice that this guy had Ebola. And so he's, you know, doing this critique from the left. I listened to Morning Joe this morning, Joe Scarborough show on MSNBC. It's normally a pretty centrist, not a centrist, I think actually a pretty integral show. At least he, at least he is. And he talks about how Americans are scared and disappointed, and they've been let down by the CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control, and, you know, the people who are in charge, the president, the administration, and, you know, everybody's in this, like, lost confidence. And it's like, really? I mean, is uh, once again, I have this sort of amazement that people expect things to work well. And I just think it's a... Um, you know, sort of a mass projection <laughs> of the fact that nobody's life works well. We all know it in our deep hearts that our life isn't really working according to plan. I mean, it's a, you know, we sort of muddle our way through if we're lucky. And so does everything. So does the, so, so does the rest of the world. If you want to know who is efficient, look at Saddam Hussein or Joseph Stalin. I mean, you know, they, they had their, their societies were, you know, train wrecks. But there's leadership. If they say jump, we say how high in those societies. And, you know, the way things happen in a more pluralistic, complex society is we sort of bumble our way forward and we fail forward. I talked a little bit about this uh, in a blog post this week. You know, part of me wishes that, that we and the news media is us. And I want to, you know, project them as being some outside force they you know they are in a certain way but they reflect what people want that's they have very very sensitive metrics to uh determine what we want and how we're responding and you know i guess part of me wishes that we were looking at things that were a little more deep and important and of course there are many people who are and we just watch the beat goes on here so the next story I'm just trying to get to the gist of what I'm talking about tonight, and that is that we're noticing just a, and, and this Ebola thing has something to do with it too, a continued pacification of our culture and a continued sensitization is the word I would use for our culture. And that is that, you know, one of the things we realize is that chaos and violence is just part of the nature of life. This is true for all of human history. And we look at nature itself. I mean, you know, from uh, the lightning strike or the wind or the, you know, the red in tooth and claw, one animal eating the other, you know, hunting them down, digging them out of their burrows. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare out there. <laughs> and we are, this is one of the reasons we survive, is we are safety creation machines. I mean, we're always, human beings are very, very tuned to seeing what is dangerous, noticing the threat, and, you know, working to mitigate it or avoid it. And this is really, really deeply built in to our, you know, survival instinct. It's, and it's the lowest rung on Maslow's hierarchy. And that is, you know, we want security before anything else. The truth is we live in a tremendously secure country. And it's tremendously secure culture in the developed world. I mean, it's it's astonishing by any standards of human history in terms of calories and, you know, warmth and clothing and social safety net and uh, communication and, you know, knowledge of illnesses and whatever. I mean, it's just we live in an amazing time. And yet we're still safety creation machines. We're still fear machines. 
it, it reminds me of something that Thomas Merton said. He said, if you go into the monastery because you're annoyed by other people and you want to get away from other people and things that annoy you, then what you'll find in the monastery is that ever smaller and smaller things annoy you just as much. And so, in a way, that's what's happening to our culture as we continue to create this unbelievably safe world. And that is, our fear hasn't gone away. And so, we fixate on the nurse and this nurse and the Ebola. And, and again, I'm not complaining. I'm just noticing that this is some of how we respond in all first tier, and by, by, by first tier, I'm talking about the first six stages of human development. They are, by integral theory, driven by fear. As we move into second tier structures or second tier altitudes of development, we move more from a fear operating system to a love operating system. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. It's sort of a theme of what I talk about because, you know, one of the things we're doing as integralists is we're, you know, noticing our fear response to everything and notice when it's rational and when it isn't. Of course, sometimes it is. And then notice when it's not making sense, when it's not serving the system, that we can work with replacing it with a love operating system or a motivation which is about helping and expressing and seeing everybody as within the circle of moral consideration and relaxing and realizing that we are not only living our lives, but being lived by a mysterious, I'll grant you, uh, but nonetheless loving intelligence that appears to be built into the fabric of the cosmos. So this is happening, and we see, I mean, one of the, the things that struck me, I think it was in reading uh, Steven Pinker's book, The um, Better Angels of Our Nature, and uh, I may be wrong, but at any rate, he was quoting, somebody was quoting, about how the English population went from, in the middle of the 18th century, a, a bunch of brawling thugs you know, a really, really, you know, violent culture to in 1950 being, you know, the crowds of ladies and gentlemen who stand quietly in endless queues in their overcoats and umbrellas and are just among the most, uh, you know, pacified people ever. And of course, they led the way because they were the first with the Industrial Revolution and the move into modernity, but that's what modernity does. You know, we tend to think of modernity as being, you know, often pernicious force. It is. I mean, it's, it has a certain mindlessness about development um, that, you know, doesn't notice cultures and doesn't notice complexity in certain ways. But it is also a very, very pacifying force in, in stage of development. And then when we look at um, the next stage, moving from modernity to postmodernity, there's another dramatic move. And in a sense, at that point, we're looking at pacifying the violence that happens out of sight. Uh, we're, we're, we're pacifying, it, it, post-modernity, we're pacifying a, a, a sort of category of violence that is unseen or unnoticed, at least, by modernity. And part of this is violence in the home. Uh, also violence in our own psyches as we, you know, become more and more therapized. But let's just look at violence in the home first. Uh, for a lot of human history, certainly this is true in tribal magenta and uh, warrior red cultures. And you can look at those charts if you're interested. Men ruled. And the more powerful you were, the more you had sway over people who were less powerful. So we had slavery, we had patriarchy, we had, uh, you know, women as chattel. We had children as chattel uh, for so much of human history here. And this is just the nature of that sort of red le level of development that moves even into, you know, blue or amber. So it's red warrior into the sort of traditionalists, be become religious um, in early traditionalism. 
but a couple examples of it uh, are the, the, the two scandals that came out of the NFL, the National Football League, re recently. And the first was a very, got a lot of attention here in the States, was Ray Rice, who is uh, a receiver in the Baltimore Ravens, punched his wife, Janae, in the elevator. She, we saw the video. She came after him. They were having a physical fight. And of course, he's a, you know, 200 and plus pound football player, and she's a woman. And, you know, he knocked her out and drug her out of the elevator. It's all on tape. It's, it's in, um, you know, Las Vegas. And so it got a lot of attention and, you know, just uh, sort of brought focus to what's happening at this red stage of development. And that's still true in all sorts of subcultures of American life. And it's not just socioeconomic, it's consciousness. Uh, there are people who are rich and cultured who do this sort of thing. But at any rate, I was just checking in on it. And one of the things that the, the, the two of them, they've stayed together. They're, they're really sort of working on their marriage in a, in a sort of semi-public way. They're tweeting and, and communicating. It's actually, I think, very cool. And um, they talk about how they've been turning to religion and they're praying for the people who make fun of them. Isn't that something? I mean, I think it is. Uh, even if it's, you know, a little bit, you know, I'm, uh, getting back at you, but there's something about it that's, that's, I think, really sweet. And then they talk about how they've become involved in their church. They were both baptized. Um, they have become born-again Christians. They're committed to their marriage. They've vowed to maintain their family and rebuild their lives together. And this, folks, is the move from red to Amber, or the move from warrior consciousness to traditional consciousness. And warrior consciousness is violent. It's chaotic. It's, you know, men dominating women. And when we move tr to traditionalism, this is where power is invested in a transcendent God. And so we all become the children. It's not about dominating. The, 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 the head dominators in the sky. And so we could drop that project of dominating each other and, um, you know, sort of together become subject to, become children of Almighty God in the sky. And this is exactly what ought to happen to people who are in that, you know, red, violent, chaotic stage of development. Another story is Adrian Peterson from the Minnesota Vikings, who has been... Uh, arrested for uh, child abuse because he was disciplining his child with a switch, which is a limb from a tree, you know, a, a small, stingy, whippy kind of a limb from a tree. But this is a four-year-old kid. So he puts out a statement now. He says, I want everyone to understand how sorry I feel about the hurt I brought to my child. And then he says this, and I, I, I was very touched by this, actually. He says, but deep in my heart, I have always believed I could have been one of those kids that was lost in the streets without the discipline installed in me by my parents and other relatives. I've always believed that the way my parents disciplined me has a great deal to do with the success I have enjoyed as a man. I love my son, and I will continue to become a better parent and learn from any mistakes I have made. And again, this is, I think, heroic uh, evolutionary response from both Adrian Peterson and Janae and Ray Rice. And I just want to note it. Also, just in terms of this child abuse piece, I remember growing up, I'm now 60, so I'm, I'm in like, I think, fifth grade here. So this is probably something like 1964, 1965. And one of my classmates is kind of a mouthy, bad kid, so to speak. He's actually very smart, very, he's, you know, good citizen now. But uh, he got in the wrong side of authority, he had an authority problem. And he was spanked by the principal of our school to the point where 
in gym class, we took showers and got naked. Um, he pointed out, I mean, you didn't have, he didn't have to point it out. It was obvious. He had purple welts across both cheeks of his butts, 11-year-old kid, that I remember being shocked by. I mean, I grew up in a nonviolent home. This was something that I had never seen or imagined. And yet, you know, did I have sort of a moral reaction to it? Not necessarily. I just factored it in that, okay, this is how the world works. I'm 11 years old. And actually, Peter, my friend, was a little bit proud of it. He was, he, he talked about, you know, he said, when Mr. Roland, who was the principal, really lost it on me, was when he asked me, who do you think you are? And I responded, I'm Peter Parker. You know, so that's a classic sort of traditional meets orange, traditional meets modern, you know, mouthy kid. Now I realize that you would call the cops if you saw a kid with those kinds of... I guarantee you in Boulder, it would be front page news if there was a kid with those kinds of wounds, bruises on his butt. But this is how societies move. I mean, one of the things that is characteristic of moving from tribal to warrior to, to traditional to modern to postmodern is a, a lessening in the number of children and women who are um, victimized. And that becomes the job of postmodernity. Their job is to make sure that the people who have been left behind, these sort of silent, powerless victims, children and women being first and foremost, uh, also racial minorities, gays too, animals also, but that these voiceless beings get a voice. And that is the great achievement of green. And so we see just... Again, I'm just pointing out some things that have caught my eye over the last couple of weeks. Uh, another story that is getting a lot of attention and, and it's in the same sort of milieu, and that is what's happening at Sayerville War Memorial High School in New Jersey, where there is a sex scandal among the high school football team that's caused you know quite a stir in the town, and also they've canceled the football season and so forth. And it's about hazing in the football program that the senior boys haze or put through, you know, humiliating initiation, another way of, of describing hazing, um, put them through that in, you know, in order to be on the team. And it's, you know, sadistic and it's, you know, whatever. It is what it is. It's, it, but it's a, there's a long tradition of this <laughs> in, um, well, High school football, for one thing, and for uh, it's also, you know, these kinds of initiations are very, very important in red structures, in warrior structures, which is what a football team is. It's, a, it's sort of a civilized warrior structure. But you go out there as a team, as a band, and you go up against another band from the next town, and using rules, so this is where it's civilized, but you basically dom try to dominate the other. And this is a lot of what sport is. This is red civilized into, you know, higher structures of consciousness. And so what is often, I, I, I often think of, a, of, a, of a, uh, an essay I read by uh, this, you know, intelligent kind of, I forget he's a Rhodes Scholar Marine, but at any rate, he was this really highly educated, highly accomplished Marine, who had, you know, he'd been in the Iraq wars as he's a, a contemporary writer. And he talked about how, as a Marine, when he went through boot camp, uh, the first couple months of Marine training, which is about taking a lot of abuse, um, he realized in the middle of that, when he was at his lowest in a certain way, and he wrote it so beautifully, I wish I could find it and read it. But he said, um, I realized that what I was doing was, it wasn't about what I could take from these guys. It wasn't about how much abuse I could take. He said, it was about how much I could give, how much I could, how much heart, how much um, disintegration of ego, how much sort of loss or transmutation 
of individual identity into group identity could I do for these new brothers of mine that I was going to count on uh, to, you know, literally die for me and I for them. And that's something that at post-modernity, we have a hard time understanding. Uh, and modernity, too. Uh, it's just too sort of juicy and, and it, 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 you know, it has a sort of, it's, it becomes repulsive at a certain stage. And, and this actually is progress. I'm just sort of mourning a certain noble aspect of it. Uh, but, you know, it has to be brought online with more intelligence. So, you know, the New York Times does a, I don't know, it was at least a two-page, full-page spread on this scandal in Sayreville, New Jersey. And I'll just read a couple excerpts from the article. He talked about, um, okay, the older players punched and sometimes kicked the younger ones, pinned them, and at the very least grabbed their buttocks. Yet the two victims who spoke to the Times, including one who said he was penetrated from behind with a finger, said, said they were wearing football pants and did not consider what happened to be that serious. In a later interview, the victim played down the attack, saying that no one poked him anywhere. He said he was embarrassed by the attack but got over it quickly. Quote, it was just horsing around, he said. And then, to just go on reading from the story, they write, Some players said they thought that the attacks were just part of being on the team, a way for the varsity players to show that the chosen freshmen belonged to the Bombers family. That's the name of the team. They said the popular freshmen were targeted, not the weak ones. And this is interesting because real true red targets the weak ones, not the popular ones. So this is, you know, a little more symbolic, more of an initiation. And um, let's see, the, the fourth victim shrugged off the assault. He sheepishly said that older players may have grabbed him and prodded his anus with their fingers, but said they did not push him to the floor. He insisted that this was only part of team bonding. You get your butt grabbed a lot. It wasn't like a big deal, he said. Later, he explained, they like poke you. <laughs> so here I am chuckling. And yet these kids are up for sex crimes. And the whole program is crashed and, um, you know, the whole town is in an uproar. One of the younger kids who's under investigation said that he told the police that nobody penetrated him from behind. It says, quote, the police looked at me and said, you're lying. We know the story and you're lying. Um, so, you know, a couple of the seniors have lost their scholarships. And um, so from an integral perspective, this is progress. <laughs> you know, it really is, actually. I mean, I, I sort of see the hysteria behind it. See, this is where hysteria in first tier, fear and hysteria are powerful, potent evolutionary forces. As I often say, we're all, you know, waist to neck deep in first tier. And, you know, we know what we're talking about here. And so this, you know, these mania over the, 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 the child abuse in daycares, I mean, we've had these sort of things that have uh, risen up and taken shape in our culture over time. Let me just put one more example out there, and then we can sort of talk about it as a, and thematically. The last example is the... Um, law that passed in California unanimously by the uh, California State Senate uh, called the Yes Means Yes Law, which states that if you're, this is on college campuses that are funded by the state, which is I'm sure most of them, uh, that uh, the cultural redefinition of rape is that if the woman or I guess the man, but at any rate, both parties who are having sex have to not just not say no, but say an affirmative yes to having sexual contact. And this is uh, what put, was put forth by Senator Kevin DeLeon. And here's what he said. He said, with this measure, 
We will lead the nation in bringing standards and protocols across the board so we can create an environment that's healthy, that's conducive to all students, not just for women, but for young men as well too, so young men can develop healthy patterns and boundaries as they age with the opposite sex. <laughs> so enough about the aging part there, Senator DeLeon. But um, yeah, no, again, it's easily sort of, you know, we roll our eyes and think this is political correctness run amok. And, you know, there's an argument for that. But you know, California is a bellwether state. California leads the country and in many ways leads the world in um, these higher structures of consciousness. It's at least one of the leaders. And there's nothing wrong with this. The idea that both people would assent to sex doesn't seem like it's that onerous. And it does sort of, you know, challenge that idea that you can sort of, uh, you know, step by step bully another person or manipulate another person into sex. You know, whatever. It's not going to change the world, but I see it as a, as a stage of progress. And, you know, I, I want to also say that we don't want to kid ourselves here that we make things safe, this is what humans do, so that we can then explore them. So making being on a football team safe in the sense that you're not really even going to play grab ass. You know, there's no chance that you're going to even be slightly penetrated through football pants spandex. Uh, it's actually okay because there's so much more room for people to have consensual sexual encounters. And this is true also in, um, you know, these university settings. So this sort of raising of the bar of really wringing out all of this residual human history where the more powerful person got to have sex or got to grab and whatever, the less powerful person, whether it be a woman, a child, a, you know, a weaker man. Uh, this is, you know, human history for most of human history. And at this stage of the game, we're, you know, wringing that out of the system. Hey, Jeff. Yes, Brett. This reminds me of a story that's been... Um, going around now about uh, how after years of criticism for being too lax on campuses about sexual assault, some colleges and universities are coming under fire from students who say that the current crackdown on perpetrators has gone way too far. Yeah. It seems to be the way There's, we careen forward. <laughs> you know? yeah. We do too much on one side yeah. and too much on the other. This is that polarity you know, that is, seems to be the essential sort of vibration of, um, of existence, right? Indeed. When green becomes ascendant, which is this amazing achievement of humanity, that after all of human history, culminating with, you know, science and technology and skyscrapers and cities, that the next stage of development is let's make sure that the people we left behind are taken care of and that nobody's oppressing them and taking advantage of them anymore. And yet that becomes its own sort of rigid ideology and political correct thought police uh, and overreaction. And so, you know, it's heartbreaking to see these kids who are, let's hope they're not for the rest of their life, labeled as sexual predators, but, you know, for playing grab ass in the locker room, please, Lord, don't let that happen. But, you know, that's what we're dealing with. And I, you know, there's a, there's a sort of back thing, you know, thank God in a, a society with free communication, uh, we actually get a we space where we get to work this out. And, um, and of course we have that. All right. Let's move along here uh, to the last topic, and that is just how disappointed are we with Obama? So here's the results of the poll. 
One, very disappointed, 7% of listeners. Uh, two, moderately disappointed, 11%. So a total of, you know, less than 20% are disappointed. There's 20%, 18%, who are middle ground. And then four, uh, so approval, but not strong necessarily, is 45. This is the biggest percentage. And five, 19%. So disapprove, basically 20%. In the middle, 20%. And then, uh, you know, strongly approve, 20%. And the, the remainder is sort of a moderate approval. That's certainly better than Obama gets in the, among the populace at large. And so we're hearing a lot about how he's a uh, you know, failed presidency and, and so forth. And, and yet, actually, his standing in the polls is not that bad. I mean, he's currently, at the, as of today, about 41.9%, I, I think was the number I saw. Uh, from the the um, uh, average of polls, and his lowest rating has been thirty nine percent. George W. Bush got down to nineteen percent. Clinton got down to thirty six percent. George H. W. Bush got down to twenty nine percent. Reagan was thirty five percent at his lowest. So you know these are all lower than Obama's lowest. A Carter, 28%, Ford, 37%, Nixon, 23%, Johnson, 35%. He actually has the highest low of any president since Kennedy. One of the sort of th things I'm talking about tonight in general is how we condemn. This is part of first-tier consciousness, is this idea that something went wrong somewhere, that it shouldn't have happened. And it's awful that it did. And somebody who should have known better let us all down. So the presidency is sort of the, you know, ultimate of this. This is sort of the ultimate Rorschach that people get to project their own failings on, their own disappointment in themselves, their own disappointment with life. And yet this is something that at Integral we have a different relationship with. It's an interesting thing. It's, it's like, I always love one of the definitions that Chokum Trumpa, who was the Tibetan uh, uh, Rinpoche who started Naropa and a lot of the Tibetan Buddhist culture in the Western Hemisphere. He came over here from uh, Tibet um, in the late 50s. And he said that, a better definition of samsara, which is typically defined in Buddhism as suffering, that life is suffering. He said, samsara, suffering is not the best uh, translation. He said, a better translation is that life is just unsatisfactory. <laughs> he talked about the basic unsatisfactoriness of life. It's a sort of a cumbersome word. But it gets to something that's really true. And sort of a sourness that, um, again, you see from the statistics I just read, that is, is true for all presidents at some point, particularly two-term presidents who, you know, finally get to be in their sixth year where we're all tired of them, which is where Obama is. So, you know, there's, there, there, there's some sort of polar, I don't want to say backlash, but there's another point of view that's coming online. I see defenses from Andrew Sullivan, from Tom Friedman. Uh, Paul Krugman had a, a very significant article in this month's um, Rolling Stone where he talks about, well, I'll read just a couple paragraphs. He says, Obama has emerged as one of the most consequential and yes, successful presidents in American history. And this is Paul Krugman from the New York Times columnist. He's a, you know, pretty reliable liberal. Uh, he goes on to say, Obama's health reform is imperfect, but a huge step forward. It's working better than anyone expected. He says financial reform fell sh far short of what should have happened, but it's much more effective than you'd think. Economic man management has been half crippled by Republican obstruction, but has nonetheless been much better than other advanced countries. And it's true, the American economy is, uh, in terms of unemployment and growth, is better than other developed countries right now. And, you know, I guess we could blame Obama if it, that wasn't true, so maybe we can give him some credit that it is. 
Uh, and then Krugman goes on to say, an environmental policy is starting to look like it could be a major legacy. So, you know, he goes through and explains all of that. I would add to that uh, that, you know, I, I've defended uh, Obama's foreign policy uh, many times on this call. I do think that he is doing something that is very vexing and anxiety provoking among a lot of people, first year people, particularly in, in the sense that he's not projecting American power like uh, past presidents would. And I think from an integral perspective, his realization and, you know, sort of the thinking behind this is that these tribal and warrior stages of development, such as what we see with ISIS and these warring tribal factions in the Middle East, have to work it out on their own. It's like, it's like having a controlled burn uh, in a, a forest with using small forest fires so that we can avoid the big forest fire. And, you know, we want to, as America and as the West, influence, but basically withdraw and sort of let some of the forces that are pent up in these earlier stages. And, you know, earlier stages, if, if you talk about the warrior stage of development, uh, which is a lot of human history, the human psyche organized itself around warfare, ar around a struggle with an enemy. And that's actually healthy red. Now, you know, we want to put that into sports and, you know, music. And, you know, we want to help people express that in, in ways that are not harmful. Uh, but this is a natural structure of development that a lot of these cultures are still in. You know, and I think the other thing, and this is, you know, another variation on a Buddhist teaching, is I don't, I never expected Obama to be, to be anything other than imperfect. I don't, I, I didn't expect that of Bush. I didn't expect that of Carter, of Reagan. I never hated any of them. I never, I never hated George W. Bush, as most of my liberal friends just have a visceral hatred for him, as many conservatives have for Obama. Each of these guys is doing his, in this, you know, in every case it's a him so far, is doing his best to lead the world according to his own lights. And it goes back and forth from one pole to the other. And that's sort of part of the system. As I was talking about, the Buddhist teaching is if you let go of fear, you also have to let go of hope. And of course, hope, the iconic poster, the iconic image of the Obama original campaign in 2008 was hope. And I was like, I hope, I, I, hope's a thin gruel, if you ask me. It's never, you know, I, I have faith. I actually have faith. Uh, you know, I look at human history, I look at the uh, history since the Big Bang, and I see a, a relentless complexification towards intelligence and love, uh, as, as messy as it is. And I take faith in that. So I don't expect us to do anything other than bumble forward. I think that's just one of the ways that we can move from that first tier um, fear-oriented operating system to a second tier love oriented operating system. It's, you know, it's not a, a, a hard, fast, bright line there, but it's a practice. So that's that. So Brett, did you have a, uh, is there a question or is there somebody um, that, what are we doing now? Yeah, I have a written question here. And then um, a couple people, looks like they raised their hands. It was earlier in the call. So um, we'll check in with Loring Palmer and Raymond and see if they actually meant to press one. All right. But how about first, uh, you can take this written question uh, from Marcus Bolnowski. And this was on Integral Life, and it was um, the last time you were talking about the Obama Doctrine on the podcast. The Obama Doctrine oh, okay. is, is sort of, you know, leading from behind, if you will, in, in sort of war and foreign policy. So go on. He says, the part on the Obama doctrine is interesting and hopeful in the podcast. The only piece that I'm wondering about 
if this is a conscious doctrine to let others work out their conflicts, then how does the constant feeding of modern weaponry into pre-modern conflict zones work into this? Do you believe that Obama simply does not have the political power to reduce this constant flow of weapons or stop it altogether? Otherwise, how does this play into his strategy? I know things are complex and it's probably not easy to stop something that's been an American tradition for so long, but some effort in this direction would be necessary, it seems, and none seems to be visible, at least as far as I can tell. Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, the, the way the questioner phrased it brought a lot of light to the subject. I, I think, yeah, there's a certain momentum to modern societies providing pre-modern societies with weaponry because modern, well, for one thing, modern societies make money doing that. that that's not nothing. Uh, but actually, I think the larger motivation is because this is how modern countries continue to, and, and not just, you know, not bright modern, so sort of traditional modern countries, countries with a lot of traditional interiors, but, you know, modern technology. This is one of the ways they can compete with each other without going to full-fledged warfare. So, in other words, there's a certain intelligence around the Soviet Union and the United States, to just simplify it, competing through Korea, arming Koreans, uh, so having the North and South have a big war and we didn't have to really have a war in our own homeland, we could do it there. A proxy war is what it's called. Also in Vietnam, it's all through the world, Cuba, Central America. I mean, for a lot of um, modern history, that's how the, the great polar powers, the communism and capitalism, fought each other. And so, yes, there's still a... Mo there, first of all, there's an intelligence to that, uh, as brutal as it is for the people, f f you know, who, you know, we use their countries as this sort of game board. I mean, it's, it's appalling in a certain way, and we have gotten more and more hip to it. But there's still a momentum. In the world of real politics, there's still probably an intellig intelligence to doing it as we do it less and less. And, and as I just one of the points I was just making is that Obama's doing it a lot less. I mean, imagine if we had a President McCain right now, where we'd be. <laughs> Lord. So, you know, Obama's doing his part to draw back from that. But, you know, it's like turning a battleship. You, you, you turn the wheel and three miles later, something happens. But thanks for the question. That's my thoughts on it. Loring, do you have a question for Jeff or a comment? Yes, I do. Thank you for uh, taking my call. Hi, um, hi, hi, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, thanks. Listen, I'm, I just saw two films that were recently re, uh, released. One is Birdman and the other is uh, called Whiplash. Birdman is the Michael Keaton film. It's probably one of the most significant films I've seen in a long time. The subtitle is The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Hmm. But I, I loved your reference to violence, and it made me realize that both of these films have this underlying theme of violence, sex, power, chaos, suffering, and catastrophe as a way of life. Hmm. Now, the Michael Putin film starts out where he's actually meditating, actually levitating. And it all goes from there into all sorts of, uh, well, let's see, violence, ignorance, and so forth. It's sort of a combination of a red, blue, green rock. Hmm. And it, 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 I highly recommend it. And if you're a film buff at all, you'll see a lot of in-jokes regarding the bird man, because he was a original uh, Batman. Uh huh. Well, there's a oh, right. yes. reference. Right. Michael Keaton, yeah. Well, yeah, cool. references. So Birdman, it is. And I just, have to, I, I just have to tell you about Whiplash because that gets into the violence aspect also, where you have this, this musician who wants to be a great drummer joins the, the, the band at the uh, prestigious musical school, 
but the director is a drill sergeant. He is right out of the red, and he wants to produce great music. He sees a great potential in this guy, but how do you bring out this potential without driving a person into an anxiety uh, situation? No, I'm thinking of uh, my previous guru, Andrew Cohen, who was known for his harsh measures, and certainly wasn't alone, because if you look at Est training, uh, Muktananda, yeah. you know, a lot of them. No, it's a good and, point. And it's one of the things that we're doing as uh, integralists is trying to figure out how do we actually express the power of red. Red has a lot of power. And uh, it's and red has a certain ruthlessness even that is positive. I mean, you cut off somebody's head very cleanly uh, in red. And that, so, you know, there's there's something that's really, really valuable. It's essential. And it's in all of our, it's a strata of development we all have. And yet we want to, you know, bring that online in a way that uh, mitigates its chaotic brutality, which is the complexion of it in its, you know, when it was ruling the world. And, you know, in certain people, it continues to rule the world. And in certain stages of, you know, childhood development, you know, early teenagers and stuff, I mean, they're red. They're supposed to be. Um, so anyway, that's, it's, it's really, uh, you know, just to, to, to go back to the couple of movies you mentioned, Birdman and Wish, Whiplash, I'll, I'll repeat them. A, a lot of drama, a lot of literature, a lot of great art is about the clash between stages of development. Uh, because th this is indeed uh, the stages of development are it, apparently God set them up so that they would clash with with each other. We sort of fight and fail forward. It's a trip. I'm mad at God about. The, I mean, I, I I think it it's a terrible way to set up a universe. But nevertheless, this is who and where we are. And so anyway, thank you, Loring. Uh, so who else there, Brett? Don. Hi. Hey, Don. Um, I my question. Yeah, hi, Jeff. Thank you for your for your work and your service. Okay. Um, uh, my question is has to do with the, if the leadership of Red is indeed needs to play itself out. Does that indeed mean that we need to assume that the victims of the Red are not to be protected from them? Should we not um, step in at some point or another, or do we have any role in that, or are they also part of the picture of the red playing itself out? Yeah, no, what a moral dilemma, I'm telling you. I mean, it's it's you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we can look at, I mean, just even the examples I've talked about tonight. In our developed world, we continue to raise the bar. So we continue to protect freshmen from from seniors, even getting grab ass. We protect uh, women from getting a little too tipsy and sort of just going along with it. They have to actually actively as assent. This is the way we're raising the bar on um, violence, sometimes in superficial ways, but it's still net progress. When we talk about other cultures, uh, gosh, if we could go in there and pacify a center of gravity, red culture, uh, or, um, you know, even think Iraq. Would Iraq be better off if, um, you know, Saddam Hussein was still in power? I mean, there's an argument that, he, that it would be. There, you know, I never thought I'd say that, but, you know, there is. I wonder what Iraqis would say, uh, but... At some point, uh, we have to realize that, and this is, you know, one of these sort of integral realizations that sometimes it's, it's like from the Tao, non-doing is the most powerful thing you can do. And that is to sort of withdraw and let the forces that are in play in the system work themselves out. And that is very, very hard to watch. And I think it's one of the great moral dilemmas of our time. And I think, again, you hit it on the head there, Don. I thank you. Maybe, oh, I know. I wanted to, to um, leave with a short poem. 
one of my favorites, which I think really um, captures this theme or this idea that I've been talking to, about tonight, is, and that is that we sort of muddle our way forward and we fail in ways that take us somewhere. So it's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3 I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. Ah, thank you, Portia Nelson. And thank you, everybody. Check in next Tuesday night for the next Daily Evolver. Have a great week and keep it integral. Jeff Salzman signing off.